Here we go. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps could give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counsellors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any other god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at daybreak, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish, the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded 
And those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwelt in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Thanks, John. Good morning, church. Let me pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for uh, this time to be still and to hear from you. We pray that you would drown out any noise that's going on in our hearts and minds and speak to us through your word. Jesus, we ask that you be front and center and that you would be glorified and everything that's said this morning as we continue this time of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope you're doing well this morning. Uh, A few weeks ago, I mentioned about a a guy who uh, shared a little bit of a story uh, about how uh, he was challenged in his workplace as his, um, I guess, uh, supervisors, his superiors discussed something very inappropriate. This week, I caught up with him, and he talked about how one of the guys actually turned around to him and said, you believe in Jesus, don't you? And he had an opportunity to talk uh, a little bit and build in that uh, relationship. And that was really encouraging to hear. And this is what I've been sort of wrestling with over the last few weeks. Um, And I hope you've been trying to unpack as well, what does it mean to live a life of resolve in a a very um, ungodly world? And we were reminded of the last uh, few weeks, we've come to this last section the first idea of the, the first uh, time we looked in the book of Daniel was to uh, unpack what does it mean to resolve in a, to live in this non-God world, but not in our own strength. Uh, we were challenged about living through the power of the Spirit, this side of the cross, that's how we live as followers of Christ, and not to live as legalists, but people who step back and constantly as we engage with this world, ask the question, what am I about to say yes to, what I'm about to do, will that, how will that affect my relationship with God? And last week we, we unpacked this amazing story, a true story of Daniel and his mates, uh, Daniel's mates who were thrown into this fire and God himself came down and rescued them because these men refused to bow down to the idol that was uh, set in place of them. We were also reminded that uh, Jesus himself was entered into this world and he comes into the fiery trials of our lives in, in, our, uh, in our trials and he's there with us. And he helps us in those moments. And now we come up to probably one of the most famous stories uh, in the book of Daniel. Now, I don't know if you've grown up in the church or you've gone to Sunday school or maybe you went to religious education classes and you probably have heard about the story of Daniel and the lion's den. You probably, particularly if you went to Sunday school, you probably have some picture in your mind somewhere of a kid who looks about 12 years old in a den and there's lions looking like little pussycats uh, hanging around him. Or maybe you've seen artists who uh, display where Daniel's standing there and he's looking up skyward and there's this 
light coming from heaven and there's lions around him cowering in fear. Now we'll, we'll get there. We'll get to that. But I want you to know, uh, this story of Daniel is not just on its own. The story about Daniel and the lion's den is part of a bigger story. So since Daniel 3, where we uh, started last week, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has gone. A new king has been put in place. But in between, there was another king. And his name was King Belshazzar. He was uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's son. Now that king didn't last long. See, what happened was, you can read about it in Daniel 5, uh, him and his mates, Belshazzar and his mates, have a big party. Now we're talking about a really crazy party. His concubines are involved, his wives are involved, his mates are involved, lots of alcohol flowing, loud music, and they decide that they're going to bring along to this party some particular instruments to use uh, to drink the wine, to be part of this time of debauchery, this time of wild living in some sense, if you want to use biblical terms. It was part of the spoils of war. I don't know if you remember in chapter 1, where King Nebuchadnezzar, when he goes into Jerusalem, he takes from the temple these artifacts, these things that were used as part of the worship of God. And so he uses it. And once again, as we've learned in Daniel, God is in the background. God is showing himself as the true God, the true king, constantly. And this crazy thing happens in the middle of this party. A physical hand, a human hand comes on just some graffiti on the wall. And the graffiti comes out and, and, and this king, he's totally uh, stressed out and weeded out and he decides to get all his sorcerers and magicians to come and explain what does this mean. And they can't. And someone mentions, well, there's this guy called Daniel who your dad knows and, and he knows how to do this interpretation stuff. So Daniel comes and tells him. You can read about it in verse 22. But it's interesting in chapter 5, in verse 23, this is what Daniel says to him. You have not humbled your heart. You've put yourself up high, the God who holds your breath in his hands. You have not honored. So new, a new ruler will come. So Belshazzar is killed. And the new king comes in. And this king is Darius. And once again, God is showing he's the ultimate God. He's the ultimate king. He's involved in this kingdom that is a non-Jewish kingdom. God's showing his sovereignty and power over all kingdoms. So Darius is set up. And that's where we pick up the story. Darius is set up. And as John read, he goes straight to work. His kingdom is unstable. He needs to put it stable. He needs to get some people around him, some leaders. So he puts about 120 princes. And over these princes, he puts these presidents or overseers. And these princes are accountable to these overseers. And one of them is Daniel. In chapter, uh, is Daniel. And verse 3 talks about Daniel being uh, the pick of the bunch. He's the one that God has put a good spirit. It's the spirit of God in him. He's outstanding at what he does. So if you can imagine, every time they have a, a work meeting, all the princes come, all the supervisors are there, and once again they say, well, we've got to give the Employee of the Month award. Who is it? Daniel. Daniel's always that, you know when you go into some sort of workplace and there's a picture of the Employee of the, of the Month? That's Daniel. Because God is with him, God is using him, to the point that King actually wants to place him in charge of everyone else. Now, I don't know if that really connects with us, 
But if you can imagine being these rulers, these kings, particularly Babylonians, all of a sudden, there's this upstart young Jewish guy who is going to be in charge of them. Can you imagine the pride? Not only that, this guy is not a local. He's not one of us. He's a Jew. Can you see what be stirring in their hearts, the pride, the hate, the jealousy, the envy creeping up? And so what happens is uh, these overseers, they decide to team up. They want to get rid of this upstart, this young fellow, this Jewish fellow. And verses 4 to 5 uh, they decide to find something wrong about him. So what, it's, what that's like is like they, they're going down through all of his emails that they've passed around to each other. They're checking out any text messages. They're seeing if there's any conversations that they've had that they can uh, catch on each other. They're checking out his Facebook page and seeing what photos he's posted up so that he can get in trouble. They're checking his Twitter account. They're, they're sorting it all out to try to trap him, to catch something about him. And they find nothing wrong. Nothing wrong about him. The whole point is to try to question the, to cause the king to question Daniel's loyalty. And in verse 5, it shows the depth of what jealousy and pride does and envy does. It drives them to hatch a plan to kill him, to get rid of him, to trap him. And they only know there's one way to trap him. It's to test if Daniel will put his God before the king. So the plan is set. You know, um, jealousy and pride is a funny thing. Jealousy and pride and envy, what it does is it completely blinds you. It blinds you from everything else. You're so captivated by it. It consumes your soul and it's like a little poison that slowly is eating away. And you know what? That's not different for you and me, is it? Both jealousy and pride and envy still happens. Now, I'm pretty sure none of you here are planning to kill someone. I hope not. If you are, please come and talk to Nathan, John, and myself. We'll have a special pastoral meeting. But I'm sure you and I at some point have been envious of someone or jealous of someone. We're jealous about their status. We're jealous about their their financial status. I wish I had as much as money as them. Oh, I wish I looked like them. I wish I had um, her husband or his wife. Oh, man, I wish I had a job like theirs. It would be so much better. What about spiritual things? Oh, man, I wish I was like them. I wish I was more spiritual like them, but it's not like a, I want to be like them as, a, as an encouragement. It's an envious thing. We're, we're jealous about them. It's the I wish syndrome. And we look around. And the thing is, it goes further. You know when it's sort of envious and jealousy playing in our hearts is when we see these people that we sort of put a status on them and we wish we were like them and we see them not doing so well or, in our Aussie term, they've stuffed up. And there's a part of us that says, yeah, I was waiting for that. I told you, too good to be true. There's a smile that goes on in our heart. And I think this is very true in our Aussie culture. 
when people grow uh, well and, and they're going well, we, we like to tear them down and we can't wait. And when they do, we just have this little smile in our heart. Friends, uh, be careful. Uh, pride, jealousy, envy driven into your heart is like a poison. And we need to be aware of that. We need to be running away from that and saying no to that. And this leads uh, to uh, where this story comes up to. The scene is set. These guys, they have a mini-meeting. They have a mini-meeting uh, together. And they approach the king. Now, the, ho- the whole idea of them approaching the king, it's not they send an email and they have an appointment and sort of a lunch meeting. This is like they come in commotion. There is a big ruckus. They want to make a big noise about this. Verses 6 to 9 uh, talks about this fascinating account of how they approach the king. They come up to this king and say, look, mate, uh, we've, uh, we've come together. We've had a meeting. All of us agree. Does everyone agree? I don't notice Daniel's part of this meeting at all. I don't see Daniel involved in this meeting at all. And it's this assumption that everyone agrees. I very much doubt that they got in touch with everyone to somehow get to agree. Not only that, they know that they're accountable to Daniel. They didn't go through Daniel. They went through these other group of guys, create this sort of subgroup to get past Daniel and go straight to the king. They have a big meeting. They're all in agreement. Of course, Daniel's not there. And they come with great commotion. They want to create a big sort of, um, not uh, stress, but fear or a bit of uncertainty to the king. Now, you've got to put yourself in the king's shoes. He's got a new kingdom. He's in charge. Things are a little bit shaky. He needs to centralize things. And this idea from these, uh, these leaders to sort of put everything under this one sort of idea to bring the petitions... Over the next 30 days, it sounds like a good idea for him because everything's centralized. That means bringing everyone's petitions, both religious petitions, no longer to the priest, but also any kind of petition bring to the king over the next 30 days is a good way to centralize things. There's a guy by the name of Andrew Reid. He's a pastor and preacher and he's an Old Testament lecturer. In his commentary in Daniel, he says, it is actually a very bad idea what the king's about to do. Because the king doesn't realize it took away the king's freedom and it allowed him to be manipulated by his conspirators. So the king actually does a foolish thing. So the king agrees. The policy document is signed. It can't be changed. And what is Daniel's response in verse 10? Daniel's response is amazing. In verse 10 it says, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. What is Daniel's response? What would your response or my response be if we were in those shoes? Look, I know we all want to be like Daniel. We want to be the hero. We want to be the hero of the story. But let's really unpack that a little bit. Would we really do what Daniel did? And I was being reflecting on this and I thought, what would I do? Sure, I want to be the hero of the story, but if I wasn't the hero of the story, in reality, this is what I probably would do. God, look, you're looking at my heart. 
I just need to pray quietly to you. It's only for 30 days. It's no big deal. You know, let's just go underground. It doesn't matter. I'll do it secretly so they won't see me. And not only that, in that moment, what would your prayer be directed to? What would you be praying about? Now, we don't have in detail what Daniel's prayer is, but I think God in his purpose and sovereignty wrote it in this particular way, this way. Notice what Daniel does. First, as soon as he hears his first response, he goes and gets down on his knees. He hears about the document. He goes straight to his house. Not only that, he actually opens the window so there's no secrecy. He goes to his chamber, upper chamber. He faces Jerusalem and he gets down on his knees. And he prays. But notice his prayer. He prays, he's petitioning God, but also he's giving thanks to God. What a fascinating thing to do when you're about to face what you're about to face. He gives thanks to God. He faces Jerusalem. And notice what it says in verse 10. As he had done previously. It was part of his routine. It was part of his habit. It was nothing new. And it wasn't like a crisis hit and all of a sudden he's going, oh, I better pray about it. It was something that he had actually cultivated in his walk with God. It was a habit that he had cultivated. And whatever the cost, including facing death, he was willing to go to that and he wasn't going to change that. He knew what was needed. There was no compromise. To him, his relationship with God, his walk with God was far more important And not only that, I think praying gave Daniel a sense of the right perspective in this situation. Before the event, during the event, and after the fact. Now, I need to talk about prayer because he's praying. Now, I don't know what your view of prayer is. I don't know what you've been told about prayer. Maybe uh, you've heard this. Prayer is just talking to God. Yep, true. Prayer is talking to God. But I think it's much more deeper than that. Maybe you've heard that, maybe for some of us, prayer is actually, yep, just talking to God, but we only talk to God on Sundays during the church service. Maybe during small group, when we go to small group, or maybe when we pray over our lunch or over our dinner. Maybe we are people who pray when things go really bad. That means we need to pray. Or for some of us, prayer is actually not even the radar. Where are you when it comes to this idea of prayer? What we learn from Daniel's life is that prayer is something that is part of his life. See, one of the things that prayer does, it helps us focus beyond our circumstances. Notice what Daniel's doing. Daniel is facing Jerusalem. Now, this is much more just than a religious act. Yes, it was a religious act as a follower of God, as a Jew, but he was actually looking to something that was physical for him. As a Jew, that was a significant thing. See, uh, Jerusalem was also God's, uh, um, a picture of God's physical presence and provision for a nation. He also knew when he was facing, he was actually facing the city of God. But he also meant that when he's facing the city of God, he's also waiting for that deliverance from that city. 
You can read about the significance of Jerusalem as a, as a city, as a, as a land in places like 1 Kings, in Psalm 48, in Isaiah 2, in Isaiah 25 or 26 or even Psalm 137. So these are people who have been told that we're going to drive out of you your culture, your God, we're going to indoctrinate you with our things. And here is Daniel looking and reminding himself he belongs to God. And this is Daniel's way of sort of uh, looking at the reason for his, ex- is his existence. Now, what does that mean for us today in 2015? Now, I have no idea. We're we facing east. I'm terrible at this. Never eat soggy wheat bix, right? So we're we facing east. No, that way's east. Great, thank you. That doesn't mean like next Sunday when you come, we're going to face the chairs that way, and all of a sudden we're going to be praying towards Jerusalem. Because friends, in many ways, we know this side of the cross that our hope and our deliverer has come. We don't need to face a particular direction or way. We know because of Jesus, we can actually focus to the one who hears our prayers, wherever we are, whatever we're doing. And I think this is what Daniel's doing in prayer, that prayer forces us to actually look beyond our circumstances. Forces us to look to the one who has actually got the circumstance in his hands. And this is why I think Daniel thanks God, that God is in control. Remember how I said earlier, for some of us, uh, prayer is like talking to God? Well, yeah, it is talking to God, but I think it's much more deeper than that. In prayer, we're also confessing our dependence on God, that we are in desperate need of God. This whole posture of him kneeling down is to show to us his, his posture is in humility, his posture is in dependence, on the God who is in control. When was the last time you or I knelt down before the God of the universe, both in our hearts or maybe even physically? This point is not to make some sort of religious rule that you have to do that. Not at all. But in our hearts when we pray, do we come with a sense of uh, confession of dependence and need? Or do we come with our shopping list and demands like a little child demanding from our father? Notice that God, what Daniel's doing, he knows where his petitions are meant to go. They're meant to go to the king. No, he goes to his true king, God. That's who he knows the petition needs to go to. What is your prayer like? What is my prayer like? Is it a confession and dependence of saying, God, I need you to intervene? Or God, you're in control. Or God, we praise you no matter what. Or is it just a bunch of religious words that you and I say in the hope that we just tick a box and somehow you know, bend God's hands to submit to our will rather than submitting to His loving, perfect, awesome, glorious will? And finally, we need to understand that prayer is not just some religious act. Prayer is so much deeper and more glorious. It's actually driven by a relationship. It must be driven by relationship. See, Daniel had actually created a pattern in his life. It says that was the norm. He actually just did that. It is based out of relationship. It was his norm. And when crisis hit, he knew what to do. He knew where to head. Is that for you and I? Is it driven out of relationship? Or is it driven out of religion or in a sense of, I better do this? And so, the stage is set. 
that Daniel had has come. They look for him. They're trying to spy on him. They're trying to catch him praying because they knew that he would. That was his normal habit. And they find him. And I find this fascinating. You know why I find this fascinating? You would think somehow, because God's involved in all this wonderful supernatural stuff going on in the story of Daniel, you would think maybe God would sort of go, well, look, I'll somehow make them not see Daniel. Or I'll hide him. Remember how um, Daniel 1, we talked about how God was the one involved in bringing these guys into Babylon. It was God's purpose. It was God's loving, gracious, perfect judgment on a nation. And God is constantly in the background showing that he's in control. But also, this same God is about to allow Daniel to go through this trial. He's about to allow him to go through this trial. Friends, I think in our Western context, we are people who are tempted to love comfort. I know I am. To love our comfort. Love our comfortable lives. Now remember, Daniel is a faithful guy. He prays three times a day. I mean, he's in exile. He's not even in home in Jerusalem. I'm not sure if he had family, but he's not even with them if they're there. He's, he's, he's on his own. He's got his friends. He's in exile. He's got enemies all around him. You would think that God, in some sense, would give him a bit of a break. Okay, Daniel, you've been through a bit. Friends, we need to understand God's desire is to change us to change us from the inside out. In the Christian world, there's this word called sanctification. What that means is, is to, to make us more like Jesus. It's, it's a process. It's an everyday process. That process is not about us doing it. It's God doing it through us. But it's sometimes done through challenges. It's like he's chiseling in our weak bodies. And you know what? This also shows that if in Daniel and his weak body, if he didn't have God, he would be a total mess. But because of God's unending love for Daniel, God would sustain him. And the whole purpose is to change us. Not only that, it is to be the witness to the outside world around you as they watch and look and listen as you go through this. Sometimes God will permit you to go through the eye of the storm, but to make you realize that he's still in control. And sometimes he'll let you go through the side of the storm and get buffeted a little bit, and he's still in control. The point is he will help you sail through it. Church, we need to grow in that perspective that God is not just there to forgive us it's not about comfort. We need to understand he's right there with us. And sometimes these challenges come to change us, to grow us, and to ever keep leaning on our great God. And so, these guys, they find Daniel, they go dob on him. In verse 2, it talks about them coming back. And notice how they come back. They come back in a very deceptive way. They're not coming back with some sort of um, straight up, this is what we're going to do. They come back with great words to say, hey, king, 
that policy that you made? Remember, you can't change it, right? The king's right, yep, can't change it. And in verse 13, we finally see in some sense, or the king hears what their real plan is. Well, that Daniel, that Jew, he actually pays no attention to you or what you just signed. But three times a day, he's making his petition to his God. Verse 14, all of a sudden, this king who trusts Daniel, who knows Daniel is the best out of the crop, realizes what's just happening. And it says that he actually went to all that he could. He's staying up. He's looking like, it's like he's looking at this contract. He's looking through the back uh, catalog of laws and different things and seeing if he can find a loophole to somehow get Daniel out of it. And once again, these guys come back with great haste and commotion and say, you can't change this. You've signed it. Time for you to get rid of him. So verse 16 says, Daniel is taken to the den of lions. And as he's about to get lowered or put in the den, this king says his powerful words, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. It's like saying, uh, Daniel, I've looked, I've, I've tried to find the loopholes and I can't. But may the God you serve, Daniel, 24-7, all the time, save you. What amazing testimony. See, this king saw Daniel's commitment. He saw that despite of the, the rule that was there, Daniel wasn't going to change. His relationship with God was 24-7. Friends, is that true for us in our lives? When people look at our lives, do they see a 24-7 relationship with God? Does your family see that? Or is it only on Sundays or during small group? Do they see it every day? Do they see it at your workplace, at your school, with your family members? If you're a boss, do your employees see that? This is what's going on. And so Daniel is expressed that there's a great witness in that. And then the rock is pulled over. The king's authority symbol is put on there. And the verses say the king is so distraught. Uh, In those days when the king was distraught, uh, they used to bring a bunch of musicians in to calm the king's spirit. That's what it's talking about here. But he didn't want any of that. He pushes it aside. It says that he fasted. He stays awake. Maybe he's thinking about what's going on in that den. Maybe he's thrown other people into the lion's den. He's seen what lions do, the human bodies, and he's seen the effects of that body afterwards when they go and maybe pick up those pieces. He's imagining the scream maybe, as he's heard before, and he can't sleep. Verse 19, morning comes. He heads down running in anguish. His language is like he's in so much pain, and he cries out, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, the one whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? This is when the dramatic cue music comes in, if it was a movie. Silence. Maybe not. And then you hear this, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. They have not harmed me. Why have they not harmed him? Is it because Daniel prayed three times a day? Because he's a Jew? Why have they not harmed him? Because 
I was found blameless before the creator of the universe, the mighty king, the true king, and also before you, this king that is in this earth. I'm innocent in all accounts. How is he innocent? Because he trusted God. No harm, no scratch. Like the lions didn't even sort of play around with him. (laughs) They pull him out, there's no scratch on him. The whole idea is you have this sort of one hand, this king, fasting, praying, sleepless. Uh, it's out of his mind. He, he, he's anxious. He's stressed out. He doesn't know what's going to happen because his trust is not in God. And in another way, you have this picture of Daniel in the lion's den. I wish, in some sense, God had put in a can of that. That's one of the questions I'm going to have when I get to heaven and talk to Daniel. What happened in the den? Did you play fetch with the lions? What happened? But as it says, there's no chaos or panic. There's no sense of God was there. He was in control. There's peace. This is the contrast picture for all of us as well. When we don't go to God in some sense, and that reality that we're staying up all night, we're anxious, we're stressed out over things that are going on in our lives, which are real. But here's another man who's right in the midst of trial and he's looking to God. It's once again God coming into the midst of Daniel's trial. Verse 23, it says that Daniel's trust was not in himself or his circumstance, but was in his God. So, (laughs) the story finishes with this powerful image. Daniel, these men who accused him, they have the same fate. Not just them, but their whole families, their kids included. And this image of the lions before they even hit the floor coming and empowering them and crushing their bones is to give the hearers and the readers, even us today, saying Daniel is innocent and this is what happens to the innocent and to the guilty. This is, in a sense, the wrath and judgment of God coming and crushing and destroying and completely wiped out. The guilty is killed. Friends, even uh, today... In our day and age, we can look at our world, we can turn on the news and we can look and see as if the, the evil and the wickedness in this world are winning. For those of us who know God and who know Jesus, we know that there's a day coming, the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, the ruler of all things, is coming and he will judge the wicked, the evil, and he will put things all right again. But friends, we also need to understand God is not some tame little kitten that you play with. He's the God of the universe. He's a roaring lion. And in this moment, you see this picture of God's judgment and wrath poured out on these evil men. But also to show that God's judgment will come. You don't need to lose heart if you belong to God. The innocent will be vindicated. If not now, but when Jesus returns. And in light of that, we are to trust and rest in God's wonderful judgment when they come. Now at this point, it will be very easy for me to leave you with Daniel and say, let's go forth and be like Daniel. In some sense, you could do that, but one thing I want to push for is this. There are two amazing statements that come out towards the end of the story. One is that Daniel says that he's found not guilty, blameless, innocent. 
And second is the king's response. The king turns around and sees and hears this and he can't imagine it. And there's a response, a revival in his heart and says, there is this God, the living God, unlike the idols that he worship. He's the one who endures forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. Unlike the king who knows that his kingdom will not always live forever. He's the one who delivers. This is the God who delivers. The king can't. He tried. He's the one who rescues. The king can't and he tried. He's the one who works signs and wonders to shut the mouth of the lions. And he's also the one who's a ruler of everything in heaven and on earth. And he knows this king revolves in his heart that God is the one who saves. On one point, we need to ask the question, like Daniel, can we say, are we guilty or innocent? Are we guilty or innocent? Church, this is a wonderful, powerful picture as we look through the cross of what is to come for those of us who are in Jesus on that final judgment day. So who is the living God? Who is the one who endures forever? Who is the one whose kingdom will never be destroyed? Who is the one who has all authority? It's King Jesus. Who is the one who is the greater Daniel? Like Daniel, he was also the one who actually stayed faithful. The whole story as we are about to celebrate Easter unpacks for us that Jesus himself was falsely accused by his enemies. He was also bought before a king. And this king also tried to free him, but he couldn't and he was handed over to a cross like a criminal. And if it wasn't for this true innocent one, You and I should also be thrown into the lion's den like these evil men and the lions should cry out like with everyone else, you are guilty. That would be the fate. But this Jesus, the greater one, whose body too was put into a, 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 a tomb and sealed so that nothing could get involved, no human intervention. Just as Daniel had just had an impending death, Jesus went to death himself. Jesus suffers the fate of us, the guilty ones. He takes your place, my place, his lifeless body in a tomb. Three days later, he finally comes out, an angel comes and moves that stone. Jesus, the greater one, is raised from the dead. He's victorious. And then he ushers a new reality that if anyone who surrenders to Jesus Christ and his loving authority as their king. He cries out, because I died for you, because I purchased you with my blood, you are innocent. You are blameless. You are no longer guilty. And friends, that means for us today in 2015, if you don't know Jesus, hear me when I say this, I say this with love. You are guilty under God's eyes. And he's calling to you to turn away. Turn to the one who died in your place. Surrender your life to him. He is a good, wonderful, glorious Savior and King. And when you do, not guilty will be written across your heart. And you can bask in the grace that God gives. And that means that whatever trial you face, for those of us who know Jesus, whatever trial you face, You can actually 
No matter what trial you face, whatever struggles you're going through, you can always reflect on this reality. You were guilty once, now you are innocent, blameless because of what Jesus has done. And face those trials in knowing that Jesus is with you, right there with you because you are his child. Because he is good and faithful. Friends, this also means... For people who are watching you in your workplaces, in your school, in your families, who don't know Jesus. Our prayer is this, when they see that reality just like this king, you want to pray that what they will do is like this king, that they will ask this question, you're going through these things, you have this sense of not guilty written across your heart. What's going on? Who is this living God that you serve? Who is this God who is the one who endures forever? Who is this God whose kingdom will not be destroyed? Who is this God who has dominion over all? Who is this king unlike any king that you keep talking about? Who is this God who delivers you? Who is the God who rescues you? Who is the God that constantly does signs and wonders in your life through even showing this wonderful reality of salvation? Who is this God who has had authority in heaven and on earth? And who is the God who can only save? You want your friends to ask that. And we all say with one voice, Jesus. And friends, if you have been following Jesus for a long time, does that still capture your heart? That you were once guilty, destined for hell, and because of his precious blood, you are now innocent, not guilty. If that does not still stir your heart, can I encourage you to pause and reflect on that reality? So in light of that today, as we finish up, let me ask this question. You need to answer this question for yourself. Who is Jesus to you? Because if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, if Jesus does not sit on your life as a throne and king, as a loving king, you are still going to be a captive. But if you want freedom, turn to him. If you don't know what that means, I'd encourage you, talk to the person who's next to you, maybe the person who brought you this morning. Or maybe come and chat to one of us pastors. We'd love to share that with you. Secondly, whatever circumstances you're in, are you looking at yourself and your circumstance? Are you looking at yourself as the Savior? Or are you looking at your circumstances as this terrible thing? Or are you looking at the Savior who has conquered it and is with you and is going to sustain you? And thirdly, are you resting in the verdict that if you follow Jesus, that you are not guilty? Or are you still resting this idea that you are somehow still guilty? Because friends, we need to rest not in an abusive way, in the wonderful not guilty symbol that's written in our hearts. We need to rest in that. But also, we need to also show that to others. As you engage with others, do you engage with them as particularly as followers of Christ that they're not guilty? Or do you also put guilt on them and hang on to that? Because if you have, you've missed the point of the gospel. Christ has forgiven you, so you ought to forgive others too. And in light of that, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege and this reminder. Help us to live in light of this non-guilty statement that you've laid on our hearts, on our lives, both individually but also as a church. We pray this in your name. Amen.